Before the 7 o'clock Mass this morning, a gentleman stepped in the sacristy and said, Father, can I add a prayer to the petitions? And I said, well, sure. And I thought he was going to give me a name of somebody sick or died. So I got my pen out ready to write. And he said, we've had family at our house since last Tuesday. I said, uh-huh. And he said, they told me they were going to leave on Friday. <laughs> and then they told me they were going to leave on Saturday. They hadn't said anything about today. Would you pray that they leave? As our solemnities go, this one is a baby, a little bitty one, or not, it's not a little bitty, but it's very, very young. In fact, it only dates to 1925. Why did the church do this? Why did Pope Pius XI name, create a solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if we go back to 1925, it's shortly after the First World War. And the armistice, as it was signed and written, was very punitive of the Germans and of the Italians. It was so bad that it truly destroyed those, not that the war didn't already sort of do it, but it really made it impossible for their economies to recover. Both countries, you know, they became very unstable. People were kind of rebelling. There were all kinds of different groups that formed. Other people were vying for power. And we, Pope Pius XI, what he began to see that the upper hand in Germany belonged to a party called the National Socialist Party, or the Nazis. He saw in Italy the fascist party take off. And it was led by Mussolini. Concurrent with all of that was in Russia, where Lenin had led a rebellion against an uprising against the Tsar. We know he was killed. And then Stalin, who was one of the most vicious dictators probably that have ever lived. They each had a secret as they were climbing the ranks trying to take over. And the secret of coming into power was, a, we use a phrase called divide and rule, is that if we can create a common enemy to all of our people, we can divide our people, and then they will look to our party as the savior. We saw that especially happen in Germany, as what group was set up as the common enemy? The Jews. And it's, if you look at all of the stuff that was written about the Jews, posters on the wall, none of it was true. They just started making things up about the Jews, started lying about them, made fun of their features. You know, there were caricatures of Jewish people all over the place. So as Hitler's kind of moved up the ranks, divide and rule, create an enemy, and I will be the savior. And he did it really, really well. Same thing with Mussolini, except he targeted gypsies and immigrants. And he created out of them the ultimate enemy to the health and well-being of Italy. And he managed to obtain the resignation of King Victor Emmanuel, 
who stepped aside. And then Il Duce, Mussolini, kind of comes in. And we know what happened with the Jews. We're not probably as familiar with what Mussolini did to the gypsies and to immigrants. But he made sure that everybody thought immigrants were terrible. They're destroying our country. You know, they're not registering. I mean, it, whatever bad things we say about immigrants in our country, Mussolini said it first. In fact, you'd almost think that somebody's taking a page out of his book, that it's just so identical. And then, of course, Stalin did it with all kinds of political enemies, particularly the church. He knew that he would never be able to control Russia unless he controlled the church. Pius XI saw society deteriorating. He saw people being put to death. He, he, just, he saw all of this. And somehow Pius XI had to say something to the world that this is not acceptable. So in 1925, he created this solemnity. At the time, it was simply called the Feast of Christ the King. And in creating this day, and it was celebrated on the last day of last Sunday of October, and it it was able to say to those leaders and to the world that here's what a true leader looks like. Here's what a true ruler looks like. And Germany, Russia, Italy, they did not miss what the Pope had done. In Italy, it made an enemy between the Pope and Mussolini. When we look at Ezekiel, we almost see the same thing, but it's a little bit different. The kings in Judah were very concerned about staying in power, and they were surrounded by very powerful countries, not simultaneously, but in succession. There was Assyria, there was Babylon, there was Egypt, and those countries posed huge threats to the existence of Judah. So a succession of kings to keep their power, you know, they kept saying, and we read in the scriptures how, you know, they would say to God or to one of the prophets, I'm doing this for the good of the country. And, you know, the prophets would say, I don't think so. <laughs> You're doing it so you can stay in power. He would enter into treaties or in covenants with these other rulers. The problem is when he would make a pact or a covenant with the, the king of Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, that the way those things worked when you in the Middle East, when you made a covenant with another country, for it to be serious, you had to swear to the gods of the country you were making the covenant with. Well, the problem, if a king in Judah were going, was going to make a promise to the to the gods of Assyria or to Babylon or to Egypt, he would have to violate the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. But they did it anyway. Finally, some of those kings, Hezekiah among them, they even began putting idols to the gods of the other countries in the temple. And because the king was not just the ruler, the king was also the chief religious leader of his country, that as the king's faith and as his dedication to the faith started to slide rather dramatically, so did that of the people. 
religious practices started to fall off. Authentic practice of the faith, following the faith, began to fall off. People going to synagogue began to fall off. That the influence of the Jewish faith on life and government was declining rapidly. Not unlike what what we see happening to Christianity today. So Ezekiel begins writing. He's contemporary of Isaiah, a contemporary of Jeremiah, a couple other minor prophets. But his book is much like theirs. He begins out by lecturing the people, saying, if you don't start to take your faith seriously, resume your religious practices and your prayers, this country's going to fall. God's going to say, well, you abandoned me, so good luck, you're on your own. Well, they didn't listen. And sure enough, Babylon takes over Judah. And Ezekiel is in Jerusalem at the time, so he's taken into exile with all the residents, or most of the residents of Jerusalem. He can, and the people began to complain to him, why is this happening to us? What do we, you know, why do we deserve this? You know, has God abandoned us? And Ezekiel would just say, I told you so. I told you so. You didn't listen to me. So being here in exile is your own fault. But he saved the worst of what he had to say for the king's about how it was, began with them. And they had a sacred ob- obligation to preserve the faith, and they had failed, spectacularly so. And so it becomes a turn, and what is, instead of saying it's your fault, shame on you, you brought it on yourselves, I told you so, he begins a new message. And he said, you have been so, led so far astray by your leaders, You've allowed your leaders to let you believe X, Y, and Z when every one of you know that's not true. Well, God told me to tell you something. No more kings. I will be your king. And that's what we hear today is is Ezekiel telling the people that God is now going to be our king. And as a consequence, if people listen things will get a lot better. And this time they did listen. And things did start getting better. And eventually, Persia will capture uh, Babylon, or defeat Babylon, and Persia will send the exiles back home. And then we hear Jesus. When he separated the sheep and the goats... Nowhere does he say in this passage that anyone did anything bad. They weren't out there terribly sinning. Except for the sin of neglect. They had not connected the dots between what they believed and what they did. They said their prayers, they showed up at church, you know, synagogue, you know, they did their thing. But they never truly understood or got the fact that if we have faith, we're obliged to act on it and to do good. You know, Deuteronomy says, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus flipped that around. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Went from avoidance and neglect to something active 
and living. When we ponder Christ the King, we're called to pay attention to Jesus Christ as our ruler, as our God, as our Savior, and to connect the dots between what he taught and what we think and say and do. If we don't follow the right leader, what's going to happen to us? Toynbee, one of the great historians, said the story of great nations is that they all commit suicide. They lose their way. They lose what they are truly about. They lose their idealism. With the decline of Christianity, we see a decline in everything. Not just Christianity, but Judaism. And, you know, as religious influence just drops and drops and drops, we see the consequences. So today just says, if you want to do something about it, give God permission to be your God. Give Jesus Christ permission to rule. Give Jesus Christ permission to really tell us what to do. We're called to listen. Those terrible leaders of the world led their countries into Iraq and ruin, created enemies. Some of, some of them created enemies between peoples that historically were never enemies, but they are now, even after this long after the Second World War. Let's listen to the one king that definitely makes a difference.